0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Uh, it's not very often that I get to be in front In the front here on this rug, I'm usually in the back uh, playing music, but I'm Eric, one of the elders here. For those that don't know, uh, I've been here a long time. Um, Two things I usually do, I don't preach very often, uh, but two things that I have learned to do when preaching is, number one, number your pages, because when they fall on the floor, it's way easier to put them back in order. And number two is to put at the top of the list, dismiss the kids. And I saw that this week, and I thought, oh, that's a thing that we're not doing right now because we're just gathering, sort of spread apart, not doing kids things, and it just kind of made my heart hurt a little bit. And so I just wanted to recognize that this is good. It's good to be together, but it's not perfect. And so uh, there's still a longing uh, in uh, that we can be fully together one day, uh, even in the midst of the chaos and the craziness. So we have been in a series of... Uh, looking at the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels. So today we're going to keep rolling right along with that by looking at Matthew, Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. So if you want to turn there, we'll be in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24 is the, the parable itself. Um, we've been looking at a series of parables here at the beginning of Jesus' teaching career, I'll say, where he's looking at the kingdom of God, and what does that mean? And there's some other uh, parables later on that we'll look at throughout the rest of the summer, uh, but right now we're kind of looking at the kingdom of God. So let's read together Matthew 13:24 through 30. Let me get there. It says, verse 24, He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bide them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let me pray for us real quick. Dear God, thank you again for this time to gather together. Thank you for this word for your word. I pray that you would uh, use it to illuminate our hearts and minds, that you would, as Jeremy just prayed, uh, in all things, bring peace to our hearts. Help us to trust that you are indeed sovereign over all things, even in this uh, crazy time. I pray that you would just be with us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I did a lot of cutting uh, and editing to try to get this down, but it may be kind of long today. So, if it feels like you're suffering while you're waiting, that's awesome because that's exactly what the passage is about today. This is going to drive me crazy. So, enjoy it. Just feel like you're in the moment here. Um, so, my hope for us today is that that we can learn to trust that God will bring about His kingdom in His way in the midst of suffering. So, let's cover some ground, give a little context here. A reminder: What is a parable? What is a parable that we're looking at? It's a form of indirect communication that uh, you, it's used to come alongside the truth, but to illuminate it for people that have ears, as Jesus says, or sometimes to confuse the truth for those that do not have ears. Jesus often uses the parables to disarm the presuppositions of those who are listening instead of con- confronting people directly with factual information, which is often what we think we want. Jesus himself gives the purpose of the parables in Matthew 13. He's using a, taking a passage from Isaiah and actually putting it in the present tense. He says, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. He's lamenting the fact that There are people that just won't listen and just won't understand. And yet he speaks to them, he speaks to those who will listen in these parables. The parables, as a reminder, are not just intended to teach some kind of moral lesson or an isolated spiritual principle, although sometimes those things come along, but that's not their primary purpose. The parables are primarily, Jesus uses them as a commentary on what he is doing, which is ushering in the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus doing? So what's the context of where we are in Matthew at this time? So Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended on him. He's heard an audible voice from God from heaven saying, this is my son. He's been tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He began teaching around his local area in Galilee. He opens his ministry by, by announcing in the synagogue that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to, bring, to preach, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the passage from Isaiah. He chooses to represent what he's doing. He then preaches the Sermon on the Mount, giving an entire discourse on what does the kingdom look like? What do kingdom people look like? He begins healing. Even people with leprosy, and in our day and age when we have to be six feet apart lest somebody breathe on us, can you imagine Jesus touching somebody with a communicable, non-curable disease and bringing healing to them? He calms the storms on the sea, and the disciples say, what kind of man is this that even creation, the wind and the waves, obey Him? He heals two demon-possessed men who are not not from Israel, and He casts the demons into a herd of pigs. He forgives the sins of a paralytic man and heals him from his physical, um, physical brokenness. He brings a sick girl back to life in Matthew 9. He heals the blind and the mute and every affliction, Scripture says in Matthew 9, chapter verse 35. To me, this sounds like the fulfilling of that passage from Isaiah. But still, John the Baptist, one of the, the forerunners of Jesus, comes and says. I'm still not sure. (laughs) Are you the one to come? And Jesus answered his disciples and says, Go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In the midst of all this, as all this is going on, it says... The day continued, and the crowds gathered around him. And Jesus gets into a boat and begins to teach the crowd that's present. So, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus kind of builds on a series of parables here in this, in this section. And most of the Gospels have parallel accounts. This particular parable is just in Matthew. Uh, but at the root of the farming parables, get it? The root of the farming. All right, that was free. That was free. Um, is the parable of the growing seed, where Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man who plants a seed and he doesn't know what happens to it next. He waters it and he waits. And a miracle occurs and then you have a plant that comes above ground. Every farmer or gardener from ancient Israel or modern-day St. Charles is familiar with this kind of process, right? And yet if we stop to think about it, what control do we actually have over the process that we now call germination and the growth of a newborn plant. We water it, we wait, and God's created order does all the rest. Here Jesus is attempting to change the expectations of the people of Israel for what the kingdom of God really is. The people of Israel want immediate relief from suffering, heavy taxation, foreign occupation, unfair trials, abusive authorities, and all those things. Jeremy talked about this last week, that every potential Messiah was evaluated against this man-made framework. Who can bring these things to us? And when that didn't work out, the Messiah candidate was cast aside, enthusiasm waned, and they continued to wait. I'm going to try to fix this a teeny bit. Instead, Jesus comes along and paints a picture of the kingdom of heaven as a slow process, just what we want. The signs of which may not be visible for a while, like the seed in the ground, but which will spring to life. If Jesus were to come up and plainly state that instead of a conquering king, the Messiah would be a suffering servant who would die with little to no visible impact in the current day, then he would be immediately rejected, even more than he already was. He did disclose this to his disciples, but to the crowd, he spoke in parables. We receive this kind of information the same way. When our worldview, the way we hold things, is attacked directly with factual information, uh, we want to fight back instead of having ears to hear. So we continued this series of parables of the farming parables looking at the parable of the sower that that Trey talked about where seed is spread, the seed of the kingdom is spread and sometimes is choked out and destroyed by other things but in some cases is fruitful and multiplies. And then we come to today's parable about the weeds. We could... I think there's, there are wrong ways to approach this parable. I don't know how to get into that. But, um, and I'll tell you kind of where my mind tends to go. Uh, we aren't that different from the original audience in that we tend to hear what we want to hear. We bring in our own systems and structures, our assumptions about how God's work into the game, and then we receive what God has to say to us. For the example of this parable, in my background which is kind of an evangelical, um, Protestant background. One big thing that often comes in that we bring into the table is that we, we view the Bible as a book that tells us how we can be saved. Like that's its primary purpose is to tell us how we can be saved. And so we read it through a filter of salvation theology. What do I have to do? What does God do? What's the relationship like? What's the transaction that happens? What are the do's and don'ts? How do I get in? Get in if I mess up, am I still in? And how do I know who else is not in? You know, just in case I need to compare against somebody else. Or sometimes with the parables, we look, we read the parables and often other biblical stories as being about me. Okay, I'm at the center of this parable. What's the moral lesson that I should be learning? For instance, I'm the farmer sowing the seeds of the kingdom. one pro tip here that I think Trey covered quite well, the parables are not about you. These are about Jesus and what He is doing. So, with this specific parable, I could easily receive it as a stern warning. There are two kinds of people, wheat and weeds. You don't want to be a weed because it will be cut down and cast into the fire at the harvest. Don't be a weed or else God will destroy you. That's a super pleasant message to receive from Jesus in this instance, right? It causes me to live in fear that I'm not measuring up, that whatever I do, I'm, gonna, I'm potentially going to become a weed and cast into the fire at the end. It does not produce the love of God in me. Or it could cause me to live in pride and use my religion as a, as a club to tell others, hey, get in line or you're going to burn. But by teaching in parables, Jesus is attempting to undo those presuppositions to uproot them. So with all of the worldviews that we may have in this room, that even the Israelites were bringing, the expectations, the presuppositions, if we acknowledge all of that, take a calm breath, and let's walk through the parable as a story, as the story that Jesus tells. In verse 24, He says, There is a man who sowed good seed in his field. The word seed... I'm going to lean heavily on some really smart people here that, uh, from my learning this week. So, please don't think I'm the smart one that came up with all of these things. But um, All right, the word seed here actually describes the progency or what comes after the physical seed. So, we see this kind of... Um, Wording used in the Old Testament a lot where we talk about the seed of Abraham. It's not talking about uh, seeds from Abraham. It's talking about his children and the generations that follow him. The descendants are what grows from it. Good seed in his field as the farmer sows. We, we use this, this phrasing in our own language now uh, where we talk about somebody's kid being a good seed or a bad seed. Um, here in this parable, the seed of the kingdom is sown everywhere by the farmer similar to the parable of the sower similar excuse me symbolizing that the kingdom of god is at work everywhere in this particular parable the working of the seed is not threatened directly unlike the parable of the sower where the birds and the rocks and the thorns threaten to destroy it it's just in the field working but the servants are sleeping while the servants are sleeping we see that what's been, what can be done has been done. The farmer has sown the seed. The workers have done what they need to do. So they're sleeping. The kingdom will grow just fine. Interestingly enough, Jesus says here that the farmer is not sleeping. He says, while the men were sleeping, his men were sleeping. While that happened, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, here in this parable, we see an enemy that causes trouble for the farmer and for the servants of the farmer, but the enemy is not directly threatening the good seed of the kingdom. So, unlike straightforward hostile threats to the weed like in the parable of the sower, here we see evil appear where it is not expected. And so, the seeds grow together, the good seeds and the weeds, they grow The people of God and the rest of humanity often appear very similar. There are no physical differences. Christians still sin throughout their lives. Sometimes they even mess up in really big ways. And non-Christians often do many, many good things. So how can these be divided with certainty? In our parable... The servants want to take immediate and direct action against the weeds. What good farmer or gardener would not pull the weeds? I am not much of a farmer or a gardener, uh, but I do understand that the weeds grow faster than the things I want to grow. And so the best plan, usually, is to rip those things out so that the plants you really care about can grow. Every farmer and gardener knows you have to pull the weeds. But these are not just any weeds. Most of the scholars agree that what's being referred to here is a crop of weeds called darnel, which I learned about this week. I was going to put a picture up, but it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's hard to describe differently than wheat. It's a weed that mimics wheat in its appearance very much, both as a seed and as growing plants. So, when consumed in quantity, when it, comes to fruit, um, when it comes to the harvest time, if you harvest it and eat it, it can act as a poison, affecting the vision, causing nausea and disorientation. But while it's growing, it cannot be distinguished from wheat except by an expert eye, in our case, the farmer. It's not until the plants near time for harvest that the two can more easily be distinguished. The head of wheat turns brown and gets very heavy and starts to make the entire plant droop. If you've ever seen a field of wheat, you'll see that at harvest time, the, the, the head is, is hanging over. It looks like it's about to pull the whole plant over. But Darnell, the weed, turns black and is light enough to, to remain upright. All of these things are mixed together and can't be separated. The farmer here doesn't seem terribly concerned. He sees what's happening, what's happened, but he seems to have a bigger strategy. He's in it for the long game. It seems like the farmer is taking a weak approach by not intervening. Why is he doing this? The parable here suggests that doing nothing about the growing hostility is the preferred response for now. Until the harvest, evil is to be suffered and not destroyed. Just like the parable of the growing seed, the kingdom comes along of its, over, of its own accord and of its own time. Here in verse 27, the servants ask him a great question. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Not quite are you an idiot, but perhaps restated, how could a good, knowledgeable farmer allow weeds to be sown in his field? Remember, the farmer wasn't sleeping when this happened. Or maybe in a modern context, how could a good, all-knowing, all-powerful God allow suffering and evil in this world? The servants are preoccupied with the problem of evil. How did it get here? Why would you allow such a thing? But instead, Jesus presents what he presents is this What should we be doing in the presence of evil? It's here. God allows it for an unknown reason. So, what do we do? The farmer's response in verse 30 he says, Let both grow together. Perhaps better translated is to use the word, suffer them to grow together. Sounds like a little more Old English, but that's probably a better translation. Suffer them to grow together. It could also be translated, forgive them to grow together. A similar translation is used in the phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus seems to be saying in this parable evil or malice in the world and in people is not to be dealt with by attacking things or people, but by suffering and forgiving. What? Think about this field. Every day, when the sun shines, the weeds grow in addition to the wheat. They both use photosynthesis. Mitochondria is the power plant of the cell. See, stay in school, kids. Every time the rain falls the weeds are nourished in addition to the wheat. Every time that fertilizer is spread on the wheel, on the field the weeds receive nutrients in addition to the wheat. How can this be tolerated? One of the one of the commentaries that I read gave me some language that I felt very helpful. Uh, not just for looking at this particular passage, but uh, in looking to see how God works in all of Scripture. So I want to tell it to you, and uh, you can take it for what it's worth. He describes um, two different kinds of power. He talks about right-hand or straight-line power. So we often think of right-hand. If you're right-handed, your right hand is typically stronger than your left. So right-hand or straight-line power versus left-handed or paradoxical power. Right-hand or straight-line power is all about being louder, being stronger, being smarter, defeating the enemy to win. Left-hand or paradoxical power looks like non-intervention or weakness. Right-handed power is, is me in my, in my bad moments when I'm the mean dad. Left-handed power is when my wife comes in and speaks magic words to the same kid who then is coerced into doing whatever we need them to do. I don't know how that works. Right-handed power looks like defeating the enemy to win. Left-handed power in the Bible looks like choosing a powerless group of slaves out of Egypt to be your representative nation on the earth. It looks like using the weak to shame the strong. It looks like using the foolish of the world to shame the wise. It looks like taking on the suffering of others instead of pushing it away. It looks like dying on a cross so that others may live. Which way do we see God operating most often in all of Scripture? Most of the time, it's the left-handed or paradoxical way things that don't make sense to us in the way we think the world ought to work. Which way do we want God to operate? We want God to operate with the right-handed power. Destroy the evildoers, obliterate them from the face of the earth, and then we, your good and faithful servants, will follow you all of our days, right? The bad news is that I think uh, the story of Noah shows that even if God did wipe the world clean, even if you were the last man on earth, you still wouldn't measure up. The corrupting power of sin is still present and is too great for you to overcome. So that right and left-handed use of power, I think is helpful in looking at all of Scripture. And here, Jesus presents a great mystery, the mystery of that evil is mixed with the kingdom in this world. God allows believers and unbelievers to dwell together until the judgment. In verse 30, he says, At the harvest time, I'll tell them to gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. But until then, the farmer, and indeed the father, chooses the path of suffering and forgiveness. So, Jesus does actually, the disciples ask Him later on, uh, Jesus, can you explain this parable to us? Uh, He does give them a little more insight into what the, the pieces of the parable represent, but He does not do the heavy lifting of the reflection of what this parable actually means. He says, here are the characters, go think about it. Jesus trying to get them and us to the point of saying, I don't understand, just like the disciples Unlearning and unassuming must be done before true hearing and seeing can begin. Often when we read Scripture, we think we don't need parabolic or storied instruction. Just give me the answers. Tell me what I need to do, what I need to know, and we'll be fine. But the gospel writers tell us that Jesus would not speak to people without parables so that those with ears to hear might be changed And those without might be frustrated in their worldview. We want direct communication, factual information, and the answers. But what God gives us is a story of His faithfulness through all generations. We see over and over that God chooses to forgive, to woo, to suffer the unfaithfulness of His people in order to teach them and to lead them. It is God who pays the cost of broken covenants and broken faithfulness. It is His name that is mocked by those who are allowed to conquer His people. So then, what shall we do? What do we take from this? The answer is to do nothing. What? What? But what about growing in holiness? What about uprooting sin and putting off the old self and putting on the new self? What about fighting temptation? What about repentance and faith? What about caring for the poor and fighting for justice? What about being a blessing to the world around us? Stop. Wait. Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. One corollary of this might be, He who has a mouth, let him shut it. This is not the end of Jesus' teaching. It's the beginning. But let's not miss the beauty of the picture of the kingdom that he paints here because of our own theological systems of understanding. So we're getting close. Let me give you three short things to remember, reflections that I took out of this particular parable. Number one, trust the farmer. God will preserve his people and advance his kingdom. Even if we can't see it, submitting and trusting to him is both the entrance into the kingdom and the daily response of the faithful. Trust the farmer. Number two, trust his plan. Don't preemptively root out and destroy those who appear to not be part of the kingdom. This is such a deceptive temptation for us, even those who are Christ followers. It's so easy to find a reason to cast aside or dismiss others because they don't meet some expectation that we have. Trust his plan. What is the plan? How do we see God working in Scripture? Well, a seed of evil is planted by the enemy in the midst of a garden in the hearts and minds of Adam and Eve, which grows into corruption of all mankind. But God has planted a seed of redemption, first promised in that same garden, that grows among the weeds of the world. And so it grows, not because of its own design or efforts, but because of Him who planted it. God cultivates, waters, and faithfully tends to it, and it multiplies. At just the right season, Jesus enters the world as the true and perfect seed. He grows alongside all mankind, experiencing the same suffering that we do. Beyond the day-to-day suffering that we experience, Jesus also takes on the suffering for all of the world for all time, and it's enough to kill Him. But we are spared. For some reason that we do not know, God permits evil and suffering in the world for now. But one thing we do know is that God Himself is not removed from it, but He enters into it with us, taking on the ultimate suffering through His brutal death on our behalf. This is the plan, as foolish as it may sound. We receive forgiveness and restoration through the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trust the farmer. Trust the plan. And finally, cultivate the kingdom now. How do we do this? We cultivate the kingdom by laying down our own lives sacrificially for others. Having been forgiven, we're called to forgive. Having our ultimate suffering taken away, we're called to suffer in a small ways now for the sake of others. That's completely foolish. The gospel writers know this. Paul writes to the church and says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Trust the farmer. Trust his plan. And cultivate the kingdom now. There is good news as we look forward. This is not the end of the parable or of the story. Jesus, in his explanation, uses the word, these words of the parable. He promises that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. God promises that He will right all wrongs at the end of the age. The wicked will be removed, and the righteous will be gathered into His presence, we see in Revelation 21. The suffering that we endure, the scars that we bear, they will not be erased, but will somehow be made more beautiful when all things are made new. What's our guarantee of this? That any of the words that I am saying or that the words of God are, are, are true? Our guarantee is the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. He suffered. He bore the scars that belong to us. And even in His rest, restored and glorified body still bears the scars to show that His, his power is greater than that of death. He bore our sin and shame, defeated death by His resurrection, and He will come again to make all things new. I want to pray and take a few minutes to reflect while we pray. So let's do that. Dear God, in a world of uncertainty, we hold in our hands Your Word. A record, a record of your faithfulness to your people over thousands of years. Help us to cling to faith and not just to intellectual answers. Help us to trust who you are, what you have done, what you're doing now, even if we can't see it. And as we grow in a world where the enemy has sown seeds of suffering, where our roots are intermixed with the evil that permeates the soil of our lives, Give us eyes to see you at work. May we receive with gratitude the nourishment of the sun that shines and the rain that falls by the provision of your grace. May we feel the gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit swaying us where we are planted. Give us ears to hear the voice of the Lord who gently sings over us these words from Isaiah 43. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It is in this word that we hope. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.